It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hello, good morning. Welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray with you until 11am this morning. Plenty of debate and discussion on the issues of the day. And if you want to get in touch, our LMFM text WhatsApp number is 086-1800-658 or you can give us a call on 041-9832-000. Now, we're going to start off the programme this morning with uh, a local story, a rather, well, disturbing local story. There is a video circulating on social media of uh, an assault uh, at the bottom of Peter Street in Drogheda at the taxi rank, and it seems uh, four individuals got out of a taxi and engaged in a scuffle. Then the taxi man got out of the car to try and break it all up, and he got assaulted, and then in the middle of it all, uh, one of the individuals uh, was knocked to the ground and it seems uh, found himself uh, unconscious. This is quite a a disturbing trend, and uh, to make matters all the more sinister, the whole thing was filmed and recorded on a mobile phone and then posted on social media and we've now arrived at a point where between TikTok, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and whatever you're having yourself, there's that many social media outlets. These things can take on a sort of a a global audience. Well, to discuss this and uh, where we're at in society, I'm joined on the line right now by Councillor Michelle Hall, who is the Mayor of Drogheda and a Labour Party councillor on Louth County Council and Councillor Joanna Byrne, who is a Sinn Féin councillor on Louth County Council. First of all, Michelle, I'm going to start with you. I take it you saw this video and I'm just curious as to what your reaction is. Hi, good morning, Ken, and thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, I only saw it um, when your researcher sent it to me. I hadn't actually seen it on my own social media page. Maybe I'm not in the, the circles that these uh, things are being sent around. Um, I'm not so much on TikTok or Snapchat, um, which seems to be that younger audience, but it's absolutely, um, I absolutely abhor and condemn this violence on our streets. Um, it's totally unnecessary. It's uh, absolutely ridiculous to be fighting over taxis for a start. And I really feel for that poor taxi driver who's trying to make a living. Um, taxi drivers are very vulnerable people, I feel. 
anyway and uh, to be assaulted when he's trying to intervene and this is the reason why sometimes people just don't intervene when they see violence on our streets because they can actually be the victim of it themselves and then even that person who pushed the other person to the ground which you see in the video and that person is out cold I mean that person could be up for attempted murder if he fell the wrong way and we all know that one punch can kill Um, so this could have turned into a very different situation um, and as for the person videoing it, I really feel they should have put the phone down um, and rung the Garda. And this is what I feel happens an awful lot of the time, that people are too busy thinking this would be great to share on social media, when instead they should be ringing 999. And there's been no incidents. I've been talking to the superintendent and there was no incidents reported as of yet. Um, but they are looking at the footage and hopefully they will uh, be able to identify some of the, the perpetrators in this. Uh, Councillor Joanna Byrne, I'm going to come to you. I mean, was this just one of these things that happens over a, you know, um, a long night on the town, a lot of alcohol consumed, somebody said something to somebody, a bit of a scuffle breaks out and it gets out of hand, or is this a reflection on the way that Irish society is going? I'm I'm not entirely sure that this is a, a growing trend, especially in Drada. Um I did speak to the superintendent yesterday afternoon on this at length also, and although there was no incidents reported to Angarda Sheikhan about this, they are looking into it, uh, as the mayor has stated, um, following receiving the footage. But I did have a conversation with him about, you know, is this behaviour becoming normal? I'm assured it's not. Um, we only met with the implementation board yesterday morning for a seminar and the superintendent himself had gave a, a briefing on how well policing is doing in the town and how it's being used as a model for other police forces around the country to actually try and mirror their successes. So I'm not entirely sure it's it's a trend that's growing. However, it is deplorable carry on, like the carry on of the the young girls in particular in that video leaves an awful lot to be desired. There's a couple of causes for concern. First of all is that, um, how them young ladies are portraying themselves. Second of all is the young chap who was knocked out cold on the ground. That, That first video was over a minute long and for that nearly that whole entire time, nobody went to that young chap to see was he okay. You can see him lying lifeless um, on, on the ground for the duration of the video. Third of all is the poor taxi man. My God, like somebody's gone out to earn a living doing night's work. You can see him getting a couple of slaps and a couple of thumps at the beginning of the video. And rightfully so, he backed off um, and, and nobody could blame him for that. And, and then lastly, this whole thing of social media, this is a whole new conversation that needs to be looked at, needs to be had. Um, you know, things like this are, it's not a game. As Michelle said, people should be ringing the emergency services, intervening and not standing, recording things like this. If that turned out to be fatal, imagine that young chap's family looking at that video circulating online. It's, it's, it's just beyond deplorable, carry on. Joanna, I'll come back to you about the whole use of mobile phone video and uh, circulating it on the various sites uh, when something like like this happens. But Michelle, to come back to you, uh, this once again raises the question about uh, the prevalence of antisocial behaviour and the the presence of Gardaí on our main streets. Uh, Do the Gardaí in Drogheda have questions to answer, albeit, in fairness to the Gardaí, they simply can't be on every single street at every minute of the day? No, exactly. I mean, and the point is, nobody told them. If you know, if nobody rings them, how are they to know that that actually happened? And it's a Tuesday night. It's not a time 
where, you know, we have peak people coming out of uh, nightclubs with a lot of drink on them or other substances, you know, where there's expected maybe uh, that there's going to be scuffles. But this is a Tuesday night. So I, I think this was just a rare occurrence that happened. Um, and as for the antisocial behaviour, there's sometimes more perception of antisocial behaviour as in assaults um, that are happening on the town when that actually doesn't reflect in the evidence. Um, so we just have to be mindful of that, although there has been antisocial behaviour in relation to um, drugs activity, which um, absolutely has to be addressed as well. Joanne, let's go back to the point you were making there about people using their mobile phones to record incidents and then circulate them uh, on social media. Um, have we reached a point where we need to educate people about the way they use their mobile phones? Yeah, absolutely. Like we all live our lives on the internet. Um, there's nothing any of us do on a daily basis that doesn't involve us using the internet. Um, society has just evolved in that fashion. So yeah, I think education is key, um, particularly at a young age. And like some some children I know, um, some of my own godchildren as young as ten, um, now all their friends in their classes have mobile phones. This is the age that we we are now looking at children. Um, coming onto the internet, coming onto iPads, tablets, mobile phones. Although a lot of parents have parental control at that age, it's when they get a little bit older um, that they kind of lose them control. So education is key, but I'm also of the belief myself, um, to be honest, that the likes of people who is recording incidents like this, um, they should be held accountable in some shape or form for this. Um, We've seen it throughout the feud over recent years in the town here, um, videos circulating of some horrific incidents and they can potentially damage um, court cases, um, legal action by Angarda Siakana and the DPP, the consequences of taking videos like that in the first place, but worst of all, sharing them, um, is unknown to so many people. And I think you've hit the nail on the head, Ken, when you talk about education and how vital that is. Uh, Michelle, I want to come back to you because this week, as you know, the Minister for Justice announced that uh, pubs are going to stay open until half past 12. Uh, nightclub owners will have the option to stay open till 6am if people are buying drink until that particular hour of the morning. Uh, and this raises the question that if people are able to stay out later and consume more alcohol and become less responsible for their actions, is it possible that extending the licensing hours until the wee small hours of the morning, that incidents like we saw in Drogheda during the week are likely to become more frequent? And what do we need to do to prevent them? Um, yeah, I probably disagree with that statement that it'll become more frequent. In fact, the evidence shows that um, it'll become less frequent that people have more responsibility. They're not actually uh, trying to cram in drink in the short hours that the nightclubs are open. Um, and then everybody spilling out on the streets together at 2 a.m., 2.30, everybody trying to get a takeaway, everybody trying to get a taxi. And that's where all of the um, real assaults happen, I find. If you go through um, any big town or any city um, and everybody spilling out at the same time, uh, there's a lot of heightened tension there, I can tell you. Uh, so I actually think this is a much more responsible way. It's the way they do it in Europe as well. Um, people will be able to uh, 
you know, have a more leisurely evening. I feel it's also, um, I was listening to Jenny Green, um, who's a, a DJ, and she says it'll actually be better for the, um, for people like them, where they be able to offer uh, better music to people. And there's a, a certain audience out there that wants to stay out longer. They want to enjoy dancing. They don't just go out for a drink. They actually uh, go out for the enjoyment of um, the entertainment as well. That really isn't being addressed here in Ireland. They'd be able to get some more international acts. And I do welcome that Loud County Council um, receives funding. They're one of the pilot towns to receive sure. funding for a nighttime advisor. Um, and I think that's going to be great for the economy. Sure. I'll, I'll, we have great nightlife. I, sure. don't, I don't see this being um, an issue. I actually think it will help reduce um, issues like this. Yeah, we'll be discussing uh, the nighttime economy advisor role for the town of Drogheda a little bit later on. But I'll put that uh, final question to you, Joanna, on that very point. Do you think the fact that nightclubs will be open till 6 a.m. in the morning, if the owners so wish, that the scenes we witnessed in Peter Street, Drogheda uh, during the week will actually increase and that uh, the the, the lives of taxi operators uh, will be more in danger? No, um, I don't think that's the case. I'd be in agreement with Michelle on this. Um, and I think the purpose of the extension of the opening hours is to fizzle out um, at the outpouring of people onto our streets at the same time. The overcramming in chippers and the overcramming in queues for taxis and the wait around the streets for taxis that are in short supply. Um, I think it might make people's lives in food premises um, in the clubs and pubs themselves and in the taxis that little bit easier because as Michelle said not everybody's going out at the same time not everybody's under the same two or three hour slot and trying to drink as much as they can in that, in that period of time however it remains to be seen if any of our clubs or pubs will extend their opening hours at the moment and um, we are in the middle of a cost, cost of living crisis a huge energy crisis and I suppose it'll be up to the vintners and, and the clubs themselves to decide to you know, if they can manage to extend their opening hours, or some of them might even perhaps change their opening hours, open later and stagger the the variety of places that are open at the same time. But I do think it will enhance the nighttime economy in the town. Um, we've a lot of great premises, a lot of great pubs, um, a lot of great clubs, and I think it will just enhance that experience for people that do use them facilities on the weekend. Okay, well, let's see how that uh, evolves uh, from next summer onwards. That's uh, Councillor Michelle Hall there, the Mayor of Drogheda, and Councillor Joanna Byrne, Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council. And a little bit later on, I'll be talking to uh, Louth Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd, who applied uh, to ensure that uh, Drogheda was selected as one of the towns that will get a nighttime economy advisor. And I'll be discussing that issue with Fergus a little bit later on. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LL. Now, there's more bad news today for those with variable rate or tracker mortgages. The European Central Bank is expected to increase interest rates by a further 0.75% at its monthly meeting in Frankfurt. It'll be the ECB's third interest rate hike this year and will add even more pressure to hundreds of thousands of homeowners who are likely to see their mortgage repayments increase significantly as well. All this on the top of a cost-of-living crisis, and it isn't even Christmas yet. Well, to assess where we're at, I'm joined on the line by John Isle, who is the Deputy Business Editor uh, with the Irish Independent. Uh, This increase, uh, John, is this once again being driven by the war in Ukraine? Well, it's a lot of factors, Ken. I mean, we've got a a global inflation issue, really. Central banks across the world, including the Federal Reserve in the United States and the Bank of England, 
started tightening rates earlier this year, and the ECB has followed suit. The main issue there, as everybody will be aware, is that the price of everything is going up. And in order to get those prices under control, the central banks are responding by increasing rates, really at a very, very rapid rate. In July, we were at 0%, and we're going to head to 2% today. Over the course of four months, that's really an extraordinary increase. And we'll see the, the, the results of that. Probably an increased mortgage rates, tracker rates will go up immediately. And then, you know, the fixed rates and variable rates are likely to follow, even though the banks have mostly held off on increases up, up until now, but they won't be able to do that forever. Uh, for the benefit of listeners, are you able to, uh, if you like, put this in simplistic terms as to how much this would add on, we'll say, to a €250,000 mortgage? Yeah, so if you happen to have a tracker, right, let's, let's take the simplest case. If you're on a tracker mortgage, the full rate increase will be passed on to your mortgage. And, that, and, and let's take it from July to today, assuming we go up uh, 0.75, as everybody expects. That's an extra 2% that you'll be paying on your mortgage. And so for every 100000 it's another 2000 And that adds 5000 a year in payments to a €250,000 balance in that first year. So that's around, what, €100 Euro per week? Yeah, about 100 euro per week. And, you know, as it goes up slowly, you know, typically interest rates would move in kind of quarter point increases. And those are a little bit easier to absorb, right? You kind of adjust your budget around that. But we've been experiencing these massive, massive increases. So we had 0.5 in July. We had 0.75 in September. We'll have 0.75 again today. And it's not likely to stop there. Uh, most analysts think we'll be at around uh, a two and a half percent increase uh, by by 2023. So you know that's it's just a it's just a massive and, and rapid increase in in the cost of money over a very short period of time. Now this is the third interest rate hike this year, and uh, the European Central Bank certainly gave me the impression. I don't know about you; you'd have your finger closer to the pulse on these issues. That the previous two interest rate hikes uh, would have been it, and that would have been enough to, if you like, cool inflation. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, are we in a situation where inflation? is rising and the banks are not, if you like, catching up with inflation and that these measures are being introduced because uh, things are basically beyond the control of the ECB? Well, at, at the moment, I mean, I think the ECB, the expectation before they started hiking was that it would have been more gradual uh, and less interventionist. I think even at the beginning of this year, Philip Lane, the Irish chief economist of the ECB, still thought that inflation would be a kind of a temporary transient phenomenon. It now looks very baked into what's happening in the economy and, and unlikely to budge easily, which is why they've been much more aggressive with their with their rate moves. The ECB, let's, let's remember, has a single mandate, which is to keep inflation at or about 2%. Uh, and they're nowhere near that right now. In the, in, in the Eurozone in general, it's above 9% and really isn't showing any signs of coming down. So by making the cost of money more expensive and the, the cost of living more expensive, effectively, people will spend less and that should bring inflation down over time. But it does so in a very painful way that affects people's quality of life and maybe eventually affects employment. Now, we have other factors that the ECB can't control. You mentioned the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all the supply chain issues that go along with that. That means the price of goods is expensive also. The central bank can't do a whole lot about that, uh, but they're going to do what they can, which is to which is to raise rates continually until inflation is under control. 
You make the point in your story in the Irish Independent this morning that the ratings agency SNP, that's uh, Standard & Poor's, they've warned that uh, people are now at heightened risk of falling back into arrears at the cost of repayments uh, and that basically a lot of people will be struggling to meet their monthly commitments. W- what are the implications for mortgage holders if they find themselves in that situation? Yeah, so what S&P is saying is that, you know, Ireland, as, as everyone is well aware, had a big problem with mortgage arrears. A very high percentage of, uh, of borrowers fell behind on their payments in the years following the financial crisis. Now, that's going back 10, 15 years, but it's taken that long for many of them to uh, what, they, what, what is referred to as cure their mortgages, that is, get back onto a regular schedule of, of payments. S&P is saying, well, that was all fine when the cost of living wasn't rising and interest rates were low. Now that interest rates are going up again, the cost of repayments will rise. And these borrowers who were in financial distress before may find themselves back in financial distress. Now, that's a worry for the banks. It's, it's obviously a worry for the people who might fall behind on their payments. But I should say that the banks are in a much different position than they were a decade ago in terms of the capital that they have and their ability to deal with these problems. So, the, the, there were no solutions for working out uh, distressed mortgages when the financial crisis hit, hit before. There are now. There are kind of a, there's a setup in place that the central bank supervises that people are supposed to enter into a, a very structured negotiation with their bank when they have this problem. Um, if people are paying more for their mortgages and, you know, on average, we were just saying there, it works out at around €100 Euro per week or €400 Euro per month. Uh, if they're paying more to the banks, that means they have less to spend on food, on fuel and even a social life. Uh, what are the implications for the wider economy if people have less disposable income? Yeah, well, these rate rises really come at a bad time, you know, for the average household budget, which, you know, we're facing much higher energy prices, as you say, cost of food at the grocery is going up. So the the domestic demand in the economy is what drives a lot of local businesses. It's what drives a lot of local employment. And obviously, if that goes down, then uh, businesses that depend on spending uh, in the in the domestic economy will struggle. Either their margins will shrink or the businesses will close or they may have to lay people off. Now, there's the other side of the Irish economy, which is the multinationals, uh, foreign direct investment side of the economy, which drives a lot of the growth. Um, we've seen a bit of trouble there, too, especially in the tech sector. Some kind of worrying earnings coming from the likes of Microsoft. Uh, Facebook has been struggling a little bit. These are very big, high-value employers, um, around the country, especially in urban areas. So, you know, right now, the U.S. economy is still, is still quite strong, which is always good for, for the Irish economy. The U.K. economy is having trouble, which is not so great for us. At the moment, most economists still think that the Irish economy will grow next year. In contrast to a lot of the developed world, we're still an outlier in terms of growth. Um, and if that holds true, the recession that people are expecting in the Eurozone and the United States won't be as painful here as it will be in other places, which will be a nice change for us, I have to say. But nonetheless, the kind of gangbusters growth that Ireland has become accustomed to in the last few years, COVID accepted, is probably going to slow down a good bit. On the bright side, the public finances are in very good shape. Uh, You know, we've had tax cuts in the last budget. There are these energy credits. So there is a little bit of relief out there. Uh, But the picture is 
let's say, getting a little bit darker. John, you make the point in your piece this morning that Irish banks are going to make, as you put it, a €1 billion killing. Now, are the banks simply going to get more profitable here in Ireland, or will they themselves just pass on that €1 billion to the other banks that they have borrowed from? The way it works is, um, you know, the bank has two sides of the balance sheet. They have the profits they take in, or the something they get from the market, and then they have the loans that they give out in a very simplistic way. For the moment, they've held off mostly on passing these rate increases on to borrowers. That hasn't really happened yet, except for the trackers. AIB has increased some of their fixed rate loans, but not by the full amount that the ECB um, ha- has increased. But where they're making a bit of money that's giving them a cushion at the moment is on deposits. So there is a huge glut of savings, as you know. That came about um, in the years leading up to COVID, but especially during the, pan- the pandemic. And that that money that they took in, they haven't really had to pay much for because deposit rates are very, very low if if you get anything on your savings at all. But now they can deposit that money with the with the ECB, and after today, we'll be getting 1.5 percent back on that. That's allowed them to hold the line on, on increasing their loan costs, but uh, their loan prices. But that will happen sooner or later. And when they do, they, they get a lot of operating leverage out of that. Banks struggle when rates are very low, but as rates go up, obviously they become more profitable. So by their own estimates, uh, the annualized increase, the amount that they get from just a 1% increase, each of the two big banks is over $300 million. So when you kind of add that up and double it, because they'll be at 2% after today, you're looking at over a billion. Now, that is the banks, as they would say, getting back to a more healthy kind of profitability after sure. years of low profitability. But what it means for customers is we're not getting much on deposits, and soon we're going to be seeing an increase in loans. So it's kind of it's widening in the wrong direction for the average household. Finally, John, just uh, one final question before we wrap it up. Um, this interest rate rise that's expected today, uh, will this be the last, or can we expect more in the months ahead? Nobody is expecting this to be the last. In fact, most analysts are predicting, you know, that it will go at least another half percent uh, by 2023. And then, you know, it becomes what they call data dependent. If they see inflation is starting to come down, they might slow down the rate rises or pause them and kind of see where we are. But I think when you hear a central banker talk about rate normalization, when you're coming from a low rate environment, that's that means higher rates are coming. And I think there's really no sign of that slowing down. The Federal Reserve in the United States, which is kind of the global leader when it comes to this stuff, is still expected to be aggressive. Inflation is very high in the U.S. And until global inflation starts coming down, central banks will really be forced into this position of right. having to keep tightening. OK, John Isle, Deputy Business Editor with the Irish Independent Newspaper. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. I just want to get to some of your comments, and I know a lot of you texted in yesterday, and we didn't get around to using and uh, broadcasting your comments yesterday, but we will do so now. Regarding the fight in Drogheda that's on a video that's being circulated on social media, Anne was in touch to say these thugs are getting away with this kind of behaviour and they will continue to do so because of the severe lack of Gardaí on the beat. Derek was in touch. He's a taxi man and he says around 12.30 to 2am every Saturday night, Sunday morning, the taxi rank is a no-go area because of all the antisocial behaviour. This is not an isolated incident. He said we are nearly at a stage when taxis won't stop at the rank. This is an ongoing issue. Now, regarding comments that came in yesterday, uh, we had uh, some 
uh, well, some some very uh, strong reaction to the issue in relation to Ukrainian refugees and spiking. Let's start off with spiking uh, drink and so on. Terry thinks anyone caught spiking a drink should face an immediate jail term. No court case, no debate. It's a disgusting thing to do to a person and leaves them vulnerable to all sorts of dangers. A hardline approach needs to be taken to those who carry out this horrific act. There needs to be a strong deterrent. I don't think anyone would disagree with that, Terry. As regards uh, Ukrainian refugees, Rita was in touch. She says the government's handling of the refugee accommodation situation has been farcical, to say the least. Obviously, as a country, we want to welcome these poor people in and help them in their hour of need, but we must do it properly and make sure we have the proper supports in place to help them. We cannot expect them to be sleeping on floors or in tents. That is inhumane. Back to spiking. Jenny thinks anyone who spikes a drink should be put in jail immediately. It's a premeditated act. Someone planned to take out a tablet or syringe with them on their night with the clear intention of doing harm to someone. In Jenny's mind, this premeditation is the most frightening aspect and makes it very serious indeed as in terms of an offence and the only way to treat that is a serious prison term. Regarding the refugees, Michael was in touch. He says there are plenty of old or vacant hotels lying idle around the country, including here locally. So why don't the government pump money into getting these buildings open and habitable again and hand them over to their relative charities who are working to house these poor people who need somewhere safe to stay. Also with the Ukrainian refugees, Mary got in touch. She says her heart goes out to the refugees who are coming here for sanctuary and are being left without somewhere to live. Imagine fleeing a war in your own country, leaving everyone and everything you know only to end up sleeping on the floor of the airport or in a tent here in Ireland. The government needs to take whatever steps necessary to ensure that anyone coming up, uh, anyone rather coming into the country under these circumstances has somewhere to lay their head when they get here. Also regarding the refugees, Tommy got in touch. He says the government have managed this whole process very badly. They should have made sure that they had accommodation available before they agreed to the volume of people they agreed to take in. It's unfair to expect these poor people to just settle for anything. Once they land here, they have a right to a safe place to stay. Back to spiking. As the mother of teenage daughters, Sharon says she found your conversation with Nolene Blackwell very worrying. Her daughters are at an age where they are starting to look to go out to pubs and nightclubs and Sharon says there's a part of her that dreads allowing them to go. It's disgusting to think that these people out there who go out with tablets or syringes on them are planning to spike some poor unsuspecting person. It's frightening to think that people are capable of doing such a horrible thing. And also on the issue of spiking, Derek in Navin was in touch. He thinks it's terrible that women can't go out on a night out without worrying about where they put their drinks while they go to the toilet for fear of getting spiked. That's just uh, some of the many comments that uh, you people have uh, submitted yesterday and today. But if you still want to get in touch, our text WhatsApp number is 086 1800 658. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the issue of speeding on Irish roads will take centre stage at a Road Safety Authority conference in Croke Park. Uh, actually, no, that was earlier this week, uh, but I just want to say that the issue of road safety was discussed rather at Croke Park uh, this week. Uh, international speakers came to Dublin to share their ideas on how reducing speeding on Irish roads uh, is happening in various countries and what sort of results they're getting. Well, now, as you probably know, uh, 
as in from uh, as in from uh, today a new regime of fines kicks in and basically the uh, fines for doubling sorry the fines for speeding will double from 80 euro to 160 euro for mobile phone use from 60 euro to 120 euro the non-wearing of seat belts from 60 euro to 120 euro i'm joined on the line right now by Brian Farrell who is the communications manager with the road safety authority uh, Brian the last time i looked at the figures um they were eurostat figures um i, I the, the impression i got was that irish roads are now safer than they have ever been and were amongst uh, the safest roads uh, in europe is that still the case it is indeed ken we 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 um i suppose we we would be considered uh one of the best practice countries in in europe but uh we have a strategy in this country that um has set an ambitious target of cutting road deaths and serious injuries by 50% by uh 2030 uh there's still an unacceptable number of people being killed on our roads to date this year we have lost 123 lives on the roads and that's a figure that's up 12 on this time last year and you know at one point during the year we were up 28 deaths compared to last year so it has been a really really bad year on the roads uh uh for us this year so i i thought in in light of that and um because it is one of the actions in the strategy one of the high impact actions in the strategy that's designed to uh get us to this uh, uh reduction as i mentioned um we have identified that a, the penalties for road traffic offences for road safety offences needs to be reviewed and that includes both the penalty points and also the fines and i suppose because it's an action and in light of the fact that road deaths really have been going in the wrong direction this year it was felt that we needed to do something to to uh, intervene and uh increase the deterrent uh you know for for people who who engage in risky behavior on the roads and that's why the fines are being doubled uh as you say from today they they took effect from um I mean it passed midnight last uh, you know last night um but i suppose it's important to say that the points themselves will be reviewed um at a later point uh it just can't be done at the moment because it requires legislation we 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 would need to bring it through the houses of the oracles if we want to increase uh, the penalty points but the fines can be increased uh, straight away and and just to, just a point there because people are you know some people are saying oh this is not fair this is revenue generating why are you doing this now um as i said road deaths are going in the wrong direction we need to bring a deterrent and a fear factor back out there in terms of if you break the law if you break the road traffic um regulations that there are consequences to cite speeding for example one of the first things i ever did 20 years ago when i started working in road safety was go to the launch of the penalty point system when the late Seamus Brennan uh, introduced it initially for speeding and the fine when he announced was 80 euro it hasn't changed in 80 years hasn't even kept pace with inflation and really there is no deterrent there anymore and that's why they're being increased and doubled to to bring back that uh, that uh, that deterrence factor when when it comes to breaking these safety laws Yeah I I was looking at the figures as I said recently I was looking at the Eurostat figures and um I I think I read somewhere that back in was it 1973 something like 500 people were mm. killed on Irish roads it was working at yeah. around uh, 10 10 a week it was a, a, quite a shocking figure but the trend that seemed to emerge from what I was reading was that as the road 
network, the, the, the motorways, the dual carriageways, that as they came online and at the same time there was a public awareness campaign in relation to drink driving um, and what the alcohol limit you could, if you like, take if you were driving a car, that as they advanced, the number of deaths went down. Mm. Um, is any new trend emerging that's jumping out at you? Um, and just to point out as well, um, Ken, and that's a really good point you make. When you think about the number of people we were losing on, 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 the, on our roads back then, and we had only a fraction of the number of vehicles on the roads. I mean, if you probably had something like maybe maybe five or 600,000 vehicles on the road, whereas now you're probably looking at two million vehicles on the roads and an equivalent number of drivers. So, you know, you know, we were killing so many people on our roads and there was only a fraction of the vehicles that there are now on the road. So, yes, our roads have become safer. But I suppose behaviour has modified, behaviour has changed. We're still looking at the same old chestnuts in terms of what's causing death and injury on our roads. And that is alcohol still remains a problem. Non-wearing of seatbelts remains a problem. The two new things that are probably uh, wouldn't have been around back then, A, mobile phones, and that continues to be a problem and drivers distracted. Um, And then the second one is drug driving. Um, You know, we do have a problem out there with drug driving and we are certainly seeing that in the statistics that both the Medical Bureau of Road Safety are are, are providing and that's the body that actually um, analyzes the samples that are sent by the Gardaí when when they when they test people for, for drugs. But the guards are saying themselves detections for uh, drug driving uh, are increasing. And I put that down to the fact that the Guardian now have the, the technology, the device at the roadside to be able to test for uh, drugs. And, uh, and I suppose as a consequence of that, they're, they're catching more people drug driving. Well, I remember researching a programme for RTE years ago about the high cost of car insurance and uh, somebody in uh, the ESRI or somebody said to me that if we had more guarded checkpoints, uh, we would catch more people for having no insurance, uh, outdated tax, uh, drink, dri- drink driving, drug driving and so on. And then somebody else says, well, the problem there is if you increase the number of checkpoints on the roads, then you clog up the number of people going through the court system and all that type of thing. Uh, is that the way to go? More guard the checkpoints, uh, because if the guardy are more visible on the roads, uh, youngsters who are into drug driving and drink driving and like speeding in their brand new uh, BMW or whatever they're driving, uh, they will get the message. Is that the way to go? Yeah, it's a really critical component of, of, of the road safety uh, system that we have in this country and internationally. Enforcement is the key and the perception of you know whether or not you're going to get stopped by the Gardaí is as important as whether they're actually there. Uh, it's that fear factor um, of, you know, if you get into the car, is there, you know, do I fear being encountering a checkpoint on the way? Um, so yes, checkpoints are absolutely very vital. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Be important. Um, uh, visible guard of press is absolutely vital. But the one big thing that has changed in relation to road safety enforcement is technology. And the role that technology plays has, I suppose, increased the ability um, of the Guardi to be uh, more intelligence-led on their enforcement strategy. So, you know, for example, we have the, the GoSafe uh, camera network, which is suple- supplementing the Garda activity, targeting speeding in areas where we know that there's a known history of um, uh, death and injury as a result of speeding, but also things like uh, automatic number plate recognition, so that they can actually, by just sitting at the roadside, you know, monitor the cars that are going by, they're reading the number plates to see, this is a disqualified driver, this is somebody who has no insurance, you know, you know, and when they stop someone at the side of the road as well, that they can't, uh, or sorry, that, the, that the, I suppose the public won't, won't get away with uh, tall tales at the roadside anymore because the Guardi have their mobility app, which is able to uh, say whether or not they're actually licensed and uh, whether or not they have a disqualification and whether or not they have um, uh, their insurance. So technology is playing a huge role in enabling the Gardaí to do more intelligence-led policing and targeting those who are putting people at greatest risk. Finally, Brian, I want to ask you, and you touched on it earlier on, I think in your first answer, the doubling of fines for using a mobile phone while driving, uh, the non-wearing of seatbelts, speeding, failing to ensure a child is properly restrained in the car and so on. Will it make any difference or is it, as you touched upon, a money-making operation? That's a good question. Every time we have seen a new big road safety measure announced, uh, we do see a uh, an improvement in road user behaviour and uh, we do see a corresponding drop in deaths and injuries. And, and our hope is that, yes, that's what we will see here. In terms of the fine and money re- revenue generating, as I mentioned, Many of these fines haven't been touched in, in some cases in 20 years, um, haven't even kept pace with inflation. Um, so I think the deterrent factor is gone and it needs to be brought back in. The final point I would make is that, look, it's a voluntary system. You know, you don't have to pay a fine if you slow down, if you wear your seatbelt, if you put your mobile phone away. And God knows people have been told plenty and plenty of times that it's just not safe road user behaviour. But if you engage in this type of behaviour, you're making a choice and you're taking the risk of, A, 
possibly getting stopped, fined and getting penalty points in your licence, or maybe even worse. And what I would say is, look, there's, there's better things you can be spending your money on than, than a fine for using a mobile phone or for speeding or for not wearing a seatbelt. And, to, you know, just to, I suppose, get the message here, and that is that we're trying to keep our communities safe and we are worried that there's been a num- there's, there's, there's been an increase sure. in the number of deaths in our roads this year and we're, we're, we're very worried about that trend. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. We'll see how that pans out. That's uh, Brian Farrell there, Communications Manager with the Road Safety Authority. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Just to remind you, if you want to get in touch, the LMFM text WhatsApp number is 086-1800-658. Now, politicians north of the border will return to Stormont today in a bid to restore the Northern Ireland executive as the prospect of fresh assembly elections remains. MLAs will attempt to elect a new speaker, which is needed before a power-sharing executive can be formed, but that bid is set to fail as the DUP will use its veto uh, to block such an initiative. Uh, one man who has his finger very much on the pulse of what's happening in the north is former political correspondent with Downtown Radio, author and journalist Eamon Malley, and he joins me on the line right now. So Eamon, the uh, the signs are that the new Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, uh, Chris Heaton-Harris, is going to call an election. That election is expected to take place on December the 15th. Is there any point? Well, whether there's a point or otherwise, it's happening. Yeah, under the legislation as it currently obtains, he has no alternative. Now, there have been those who have been writing and saying, and those politicians delusionally saying, it would not happen. But short of a miracle today at Westminster, something extraordinary happening, it is going to happen. He will, at a minute past midnight, be obliged, if there's no first and deputy first minister in place, he will be obliged under the current legislation of the law which was introduced specifically to buy time to give the politicians an opportunity to regroup, to come back into the Assembly. And that time has now expired. And Chris uh, uh, Heaton Harris, the Secretary of State, the new Secretary of State, has been adamant. He hasn't been taken seriously, but I'm afraid that Mr. Buss there's going to be there's going to be an election called at a minute past midnight tonight. Well, come December the 16th, after the votes have counted, aren't we facing a scenario where we're going to be back in what is the current status quo position? In other words, uh, the DUP are likely to say, no, we're still not going back into the Assembly because there's been no movement on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Only and this time around, they're going to say, uh, we went to the electorate saying that we won't go back into the Stormont Assembly and we now have a mandate for that. So aren't we facing into a scenario whereby... Uh, we're not going to be any further on come December the 16th. Well, you're presupposing that the Democratic Unionist Party is going to get a strong mandate uh, for their stance. Now, there was one opinion poll which came out very favourably in favour of the stance being adopted by the DUP on the question of the protocol. But the general community association here has deteriorated very considerably in terms of where we are with the cost of fuel and energy and the cost of living and all of that. So from that, in that, from that point of view, the, the, the general well-being of, of Northern Ireland currently has deteriorated very dramatically in recent months. Like... For example, I'm only speaking as an individual, but uh, it looks as like it looks as if I'm facing 
a three and a half thousand pound bill for of energy in the next year. So that's the reality. Now, people right across Northern Ireland are going to be faced with a bill of that magnitude. So potentially, in any election, the DUP could be punished for blocking the establishment of government at, at Stalin. And, and I can just tell you this, Ken, from all the posting that I have done in the middle-class Catholic community, I mean middle-class, what would have been very traditional SCLP people. They are going to vote for Sinn Féin. There's not a doubt in the world they are going to vote for Sinn Féin to a man and a woman. That's, that's the message out there that I'm hearing every day now. There are there's no renaissance in the mouths of these people. They are going, they're not going to allow the DUP to dictate who should be first minister here and who should not be first minister. There is a, there's a little fear within nationalism that the DUP is not, is not willing to accept Michel O'Neill or any nationalist in that position of first minister. That is the, that is the little fear in nationalism. Is that uh, the real issue here, that this uh, boycott of the new Stormont Assembly uh, following the elections in May, it's actually nothing to do with the protocol. It's just that the hardliners in the DUP just cannot accept that Sinn Féin are now the top dogs. Is that really what it boils down to? I would not be definitive about that because I've spoken with DUP people who said, no, that is not the problem, that that the DUP would go into government if they if they considered that the protocol was sufficiently mitigated. Now, whether it's mitigation or whether they want to get rid of it is debatable. But those talks are continuing. Those talks between the UK government and Europe will continue now, regardless of what goes on. But as of now, um, the DUP have got to be worried. It was very interesting. One thing in Paris went so firmly at Westminster the other day, and the DUP was straight in to see Liz Truss. I presume to try together to force a change, but but they, they can't force a change unless the legislation of Westminster is changed. And Heaton Harris had no intention of changing that legislation. There would have had to be an alteration to the law as it obtained if the government had decided that there wouldn't be an election. But because that legislation has not been changed, there's going to be an election. And of course, this this there's even more fuel on the on the fire. From the from the DUP point of view, the legislation on the Irish language and on the status of the Irish language in Northern Ireland, along with Ulster Scots, uh, has now been passed. It has passed, uh, passed through Westminster last night. Now, this is this is really really a red right to a bull. You can take it from me, Ken. Will be members of the DUP. They will be frothing at the mouth this morning over the passing of that legislation, which affords the Irish language an official status now in Northern Ireland for the first time. Well, well on that very point, no. on that very point, uh, the Irish Language Act, uh, which is going to see more signage, we'll say, on roads, Oskelga, uh, more uh, interpretations from court cases, Oskelga, uh, the fact that Catholics surpassed uh, Protestants in the census figures published recently, has it dawned on people yet in the DUP that change is now happening to a point where their days of dominance are well and truly over? I, I think they're in denial. I think they're in denial. And they're, they're having a nightmare. I mean, I keep asking all my Catholic friends, 
what can we do? What can we really do to help you? Because this is by taking this can. Uh, what would we have gained collectively as a humanity, as a community, if uh, a sufficient body of anger develops within the Protestant Unionist community and you get people there, ill-advised, uh, whatever, and they recourse to guns again? And I, I think that, that is a danger, that there will be elements. I'm not saying that there will be, that there'll be wholesale a rerun of what we experienced uh, traditionally, I'll tell you why I, did, I don't think that would, would happen. I think technology is so advanced now, surveillance and uh, the whole capacity to, to listen, uh, uh, what, what goes on uh, on the ground. I think that's so advanced now that it would be virtually impossible to go back to the campaigns of violence, which we experienced down the years. Uh, so I, I wouldn't think we could return to that. But one man with a gun or two men with a gun can do a lot of harm. And, and it's it, it, trying to help unionism to uh, to help themselves. And I'm not patronizing, but uh, we're always talking about this among ourselves because uh, because unionism is increasingly feeling uh, 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 lost. And this uh, abrupt decision by Hayden Harris, however legally is, is a shock to them. And, and they just do not like it. Uh, and they don't like it in the blame for the non-functioning administration at Stormont. But they pulled out of that administration, and this is where we are. Just one final question, Eamon. Assuming that on uh, December the 16th, uh, we find ourselves in a situation where Sinn Féin uh, have the most seats and the DUP are still in second position, as is currently uh, the case, and the DUP refuse to go back into the Stormont Assembly, what options then are open to the British government to try and put manners on the DUP and get the Stormont uh, executive up and running again? Um, it's virtually impossible if they don't play ball. Uh, we're into direct rule of some manifestation, and uh, that is a very serious development. And that, and that, at that stage, inevitably, inevitably, uh, there's more of a consultative role for Dublin, and that is really what's terrorising the democratic unionism and unionism now. Uh, in the last, in the last 48 hours, we had Michelle O'Neill and, and others, and particularly Naomi Long, uh, flagging up that. Uh, Dublin would have a greater say in in a situation where we went back uh, to direct rule, and I, I think that's probably true. Uh, I I think that the, the two administrations will sharpen up the cooperation. They're getting back on track already. Um, the behaviour example of, of of one of the ministers here recently, well, a member of the uh, ERG group, a, a very hardline. Uh, anti-political group, who's now a minister here, he apologised to the Irish government recently for his attitude. And I, I just think there's a growing realism here that, uh, you know, they're going to have to stand up to the DUP. But uh, I don't want to, I don't think that uh, any government wants to aggravate them to the point where hardliners, real hardliners in the community uh, would have an excuse uh, for going back onto the streets or engaging in, in any manifestation of violence. It's a delicate area now. We're, we could be moving into a fairly crucial period here in Northern Ireland. That's uh, Eamon Malley there, broadcaster and journalist from uh, Belfast, on the phone to me earlier on. Coming up, we'll be discussing abortion, amongst other things, and women's reproductive health. But we'll take a break. 
Now, an end to the 12-week gestational limit on abortions in Ireland is among the recommendations from a National Women's Council report on reproductive health published this week. The report also says teaching about child sexual abuse could help prevent it occurring, in addition to calling for a focus on the harms of pornography, abuse by partners and gender stereotypes. Alana Ryan is the Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland, and she joins me on the line right now. Um, Why exactly do you want an end to the 12-week gestational limit on a pregnancy? Good morning, Ken. Thank you for having me on. So our report, which we brought out this week, is really around acknowledging and celebrating the advances we've seen in reproductive rights in recent years. And then also looking at where there are still outstanding issues and where progress can be built on. And in relation to the abortion care section, we're um, listening to the concerns and the problems that women are facing in the here and now. And one of those issues is that the 12-week time limit for abortion on request is very challenging and it's causing uh, continued travel to the UK as some women continue to find themselves outside of that time limit um, when seeking care. And so we've seen over 700 Irish residents have to travel to the UK since 2019 and the vast majority of those are outside the 12-week limit. So that's why we're calling for a review of that limit to ensure abortion is available on request in Ireland and that that care can be provided as part of a consultation between a doctor and her, uh, a woman and her doctor um, to ensure that the appropriate supports are available at home, uh, including the aftercare. So are you effectively saying that when the people of Ireland uh, took part in a referendum to uh, decriminalise abortion in Ireland, uh, that basically we have a situation now where the 12-week gestational period is not long enough and that you want it extended perhaps, what, to 16 weeks, 20 weeks? What have you in mind? So so two things there, Ken. So uh, the referendum didn't decriminalise abortion. It made it legal in a, a certain set of circumstances. So abortion is available on request up to 12 weeks and uh, after 12 weeks in very specific circumstances around uh, risk to the health or life of the mother um, and also in the case of facial fetal anomalies. And what we're seeing in, in uh, terms of how that law and policy framework is playing out is that it is creating barriers for women and that what people voted for in 2018, which I think was really around enabling access to care at home in Ireland, ensuring that doctors were able to support women in Ireland and ensure that that care was provided, that that's not uh, happening in all circumstances. And it's particularly challenging for those women who have irregular periods and who find themselves um, in the situation where they only realise they're pregnant uh, close to that 12-week time frame. We do have a mandatory three-day waiting period. So even when you find out you're pregnant, uh, you have to call My Options, which is a helpline, uh, to get the contact details of the nearest GP. You have your initial consultation with the GP. Then you have to wait for three days. Um, and if it's a weekend, you know, it can be five days. Um, and then only after that point can the abortion pills be provided to you. So all of these things cause delays and um, barriers to access okay, for women. Did, did, did you people not sort of pitch this to the government after the referendum? 
So absolutely. I mean, what what we said was that the referendum was the first step and it was a really monumental moment in terms of women's access to care at home. But actually, there was a very specific clause in the legislation which was passed in 2018. um, And that was around a review of how the abortion service is working after three years so that we can see what's happening in practice and where it can be improved. And that was um, a key clause that we at the National Women's Council wanted so that we can assess how the legislation sure. is working. Okay, and, and what would be... That's why we're bringing forward these proposals. Yeah, what would be the ideal gestational period that you have in mind? So we would uh, follow our lead from the WHO guidelines, which came out in March of this year. And the WHO is very clear that abortion should be integrated into healthcare systems and that it should be a decision between the service user and the doctor. So we say that abortion should be available on request in Ireland up to viability. So uh, viability is, is interpreted as around 24 weeks and that's the time frame uh, for abortion care in England and Wales and also in the Netherlands. What would you say to people that would take the view that once you go past 12 weeks, uh, you know, the, the, the very minute fetus is effectively a living individual and that this amounts to a form of murder? Uh, so that's not um, an evidence-based position at all. You know, I think we need to, to ground this debate in terms of the clinical evidence and the recommendations from medical bodies such as the World Health Organization. I think um, abortion is a situation where a woman uh, needs to terminate a pregnancy in consultation with a doctor. And that can be for a myriad of reasons. Every pregnancy is personal. Every decision um, is one which is best made by the person most affected. I I just want to move on, uh, Alana, because there's just one or two other things I want to get through. Uh, In terms of moving this on, um, you're obviously engaging with the government. Uh, When are you hoping there might be some decision made on the uh, the time limits in relation to a pregnancy where an abortion can and can't take place? So this review that I mentioned, which is mandated under the legislation, is due to conclude in the next month. Um, so uh, we would expect that the report of the independent chair who's been leading this review um, will uh, look at some of those problems which we've spoken about and make recommendations on that. Um, you know, there has been uh, significant evidence gathered over this period and I would expect that the report would highlight um, the barriers okay. around the gestation limit. So that would be in a month's time. Okay, you're also calling for, if you like, um, a curriculum at school to teach about the issues of child sexual abuse and the harm caused by pornography. What have you in mind here? So, I mean, to kind of uh, give a bit more context and framing to that, we really need to have a curriculum which is grounded in uh, the lived reality of children and young people's lives in the here and now. And so this is about a modern curriculum which supports children and young people to recognise what constitutes abusive or harmful behaviour and where support is available to them. We really, really need to be equipping our young people with um, the ability to recognise what is inappropriate, what is harassment, what is abuse, and particularly for teenage girls who we know are at a disproportionate risk of experiencing this. So the curriculum is an opportunity, and I think it's really important that we get that right. Yeah. 
OK, well, we discussed uh, drink spiking as well earlier this week, and of course there's all the uh, the hazards of uh, social media and access to the internet. Unfortunately, Alana, we're going to have to leave it there, but thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. That's Alana Ryan, Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you want to get in touch, you can contact us by text or WhatsApp. The LMFM number is 086-1800-658. Now, if you heard our interview yesterday with the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, you will know that the licensing laws are to be reformed probably in the summer of next year when the legislation passes through the Oireachtas and it's going to mean that pubs can stay open until half past 12 and nightclub owners will have the option to keep their nightclubs open until 6am in the morning. Now, one of the provisions in the bill will be the appointment of what's called nighttime ambassadors or nighttime advisors to a number of towns and cities around the country. And one of the beneficiaries is Drogheda. This was lobbied for and applied for by uh, Fine Gael TD for Louth and Eastmeath, Fergus O'Dowd, and he joins me on the line right now. First of all, Fergus, what exactly is a nighttime economy advisor? Well, basically, it's to make sure that towns in the evening and at night right around the country, uh, following this initial nine towns that will be used as as a model for it, that their nighttime economy will be very friendly, will be open, will be safe, will be secure, will be a place where people will be happy to walk and friends to meet. It's not about alcohol, it's about the whole town itself. So... In other words, if you have a favourite cafe, that uh, there will be hopefully music or entertainment there. That you have arts and culture and arts uh, will be widely promoted. That the local council will be working with, say, Drogheda, Love Drogheda. Uh, they, they will work with the Bids Committee in Drogheda to make the town a much more attractive place. So this individual will be responsible for organising and make sure he, making sure that all the community, all the commercial interests, and most importantly, the Gardaí are involved and are listened to in the plan for, for our town here. So we're delighted that Drogheda is, is one of the nine places chosen. And obviously that job will be advertised. The County Council will be managing that. So hopefully the appointment in the new year will make big changes for everybody and make the town, as I say, safer, more attractive and an even more friendly place. Well, this sounds like a a completely new initiative. You say that the position would be advertised for. I mean, there's not exactly a a university degree course on being a nighttime economy advisor. So what sort of credentials will a nighttime economy advisor be required to have for this role? Right. Well, I think basically uh, they have to have the capacity to work with people that have to have ambition. Uh, they'll have to work, as I said, with businesses, communities, venues, residents, artists. So it's somebody who can get on well with people, has a knowledge of how how people work together, understands the arts, understands culture, understands how, how business works. Uh, so I presume a, a good dollop of common sense, in my view, would be the most important thing to have. And obviously to be understand the needs of, of young people and of older people as well and if you walk down the town early on some evenings, there's no life at all because there's nowhere for people who might want to go down with their family and have just have a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, seven, eight o'clock. You know, so there's, there's lots of changes to be made. You know, and even if you're looking at something like Sunday morning, uh, Sunday morning is dead in our town. There's very few places open 
And I know it's the nighttime economy advisor, but the town could be a much buzzier, busier, uh, you know, happier place uh, with more people out, uh, with, <coughs> excuse me, with somewhere to go. So I think, uh, you know, there's a lot, somebody put on their thinking cap. Uh, you know, we could have we could have a much livelier, <coughs> friendly, safer town. Also, I think the Gardaí would be very important because clearly, uh, clearly, you know, if people are going to be out later, excuse me, <coughs> we you would want to make sure that there's appropriate Garda patrols and there's appropriate um, and responsible people running these businesses or these pubs. Or, or these nightclubs, and that they're held, they have to be held accountable for the sure. safety of everybody, and particularly women, uh, you know, and, and people going home late at night. Is there transport available? Do we need more taxis? You know, how do you assure people that everything is going to be safe for them? Yeah, sure. So but very uh, important uh, yeah, right, but this role is, if you like, a fresh start role in that there's no template uh, for the uh, objectives of the position. So uh, whoever is appointed, we'll say, for the town of Drogheda, uh, isn't he or she going into this blind and will basically have to make it up as they go along? Well, not really, uh, even though obviously it will be a completely new initiative and hopefully the person will be able to make lots of proposals that they can get people to run with. I think the, the key point is that there is already a nighttime economy advisors in some cities in England, like in Manchester. There's also a report on which involves all of the entertainment business, the publicans, the culture, the arts, the different departments, local government. There is a report which was published earlier this year, and there are 36 recommendations in it. So there are significant proposals there. But, I mean, the main thing is to make our towns, uh, you know, much livelier, much busier. If you walk down, excuse me, <clears throat> if you walk down, if you're on holidays in Spain or in France or wherever, Italy, you know, the towns are much livelier. I know the weather is always much better as well, which is an important point to make. Uh, they have a lot more public spaces. So it'll be, it'll be, there'll be pressure on the local authority to define uh, and to obviously make public spaces more attractive. And if you look and draw the look at Westgate, you know, we have the Westgate vision uh, plan and we'll have new public spaces there. We'll have hopefully six, seven, eight million euros uh, allocated to improve that area. So the whole town is changing. It is getting better. It's also getting bigger. Uh, OK, know, but let me put the point changing. to you. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember a very vibrant social scene in Drogheda <coughs> back, back in the 1980s. We used to sort of say quite oh, regularly <laughs> that uh, Tuesday night was the quietest night in Drogheda because there was something on nearly every other night of the week. But Yes. Spending habits have changed because the cost of living has got more expensive. People are getting up for work earlier now in the in the morning, and people just don't have the spend that the uh, that they used to have. Isn't the reality that no matter what a nighttime economy advisor advises, that if people just don't have the money, uh, it's going to be very very difficult to generate, if you like. Social um, socialising activity between Monday and Thursday. That that is true, uh, but what is also true is that uh, the, one of the ideas that has been put out there is that there will be funding available uh, to community groups. There will be funding available, you know, to to business, you know, to to hire entertainers, to hire music, you know. So so and there's also voluntary groups are clubs or whatever, you know, they would put on and be involved in voluntary activities. I appreciate exactly what you're saying, 
but buying a cup of coffee is not the most expensive exercise. You know, and if you're a local cafe, which you love and hang about during the day, if it's available at night and it's as entertainment there, it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive. But obviously the people providing the entertainment have to be paid. And, and you know, there's, there's an awful lot of work to be done. But it is, it is a radical and it's a change. And it'll be keeping up with modern times. I remember the 80s as well. I mean, remember earlier decades when, you know, you're lucky to have the money to go out on a Saturday night. Uh, you know, so like, I mean, you know, we've, we, we've gone through difficult and obviously bad times. And obviously times are very tough now. And you're absolutely right. I think the public entertainment has to be key and a particularly important part of this. Let me put uh, another so question to you, Fergus. I mean, sure. bar, bar owners and uh, the, the the dwindling number of nightclubs uh, in the country, yes. let alone the, the Loud Me, the area, the people who own these establishments might say, well, who is a nighttime economy advisor to be telling yeah, well, me I mean, how to run yeah. my business? Uh, because but I they know... Won't, they won't do that. They won't be doing that, Ken. They'll be... Uh, like... How can I put it to you? Like the, the Draw the Bids Committee is an example, if I can choose them. I mean, uh, you have Trevor there, and he has organised. He's changed the whole town. Look look around at all the things that are happening. The improved lighting, you know, the murals, the community spirit, the businesses working together. So every it's a voluntary thing. This guy won't be going around with a stick tell you, you know, you, you have to do this and you have to do that. It, it'll be encouraging people. But you're quite right, Ken. It has to be the right person. And that's why there'll be a competition. I presume that the uh, that, that the uh, people who will be doing the interviewing, you know, that I, I would hope that there would be uh, people from the exact businesses you're talking about, you know, and, uh, you know, to, to articulate what, what, what is actually needed. Uh, so obviously every town is different. Uh, and Drogheda is, is becoming a city now. And... Uh, you know, it's time for change, and this this will help bring about that change. Okay, let me put this other question to you. Um, this sounds like uh, progress for the town of Drogheda, now the biggest uh, town in the country because of its growing population. But publicans and nightclub owners, restaurant owners in Dundalk, uh, Navin, RD, Trim... Kells, whatever, they may feel that they've been overlooked here, that Drogheda is getting, if you like, special treatment. What would you say to people in those towns uh, who... Well, of course it is. Of course it is a special place. It's the biggest town in Ireland, and as as we pointed out there earlier, uh, you know, it's in the same league as Dublin City, Cork, Limerick, Galway. Uh, the other places then are Kilkenny, Sligo, Buncran and Longford. Uh, so, obviously, these pilot areas, they'll all report and there'll, there'll be a plan for the whole country. But there's nothing stopping any community from learning from anybody else. So, you know, whether you have the nighttime economy uh, advisor or not, you can pick up those ideas yourself in your own business or sure, in your but, own voluntary body but yes, and, but Fergus, and run with them. Yeah, but where I'm going with this question is that once this nighttime economy advisor is appointed for Drogheda, I mean, are publicans and restaurant owners and nightclub owners in Dundalk and Navan, can they latch on to what's happening in Drogheda in terms of a, a template being drawn up as to the right way to go? Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you look at the Bids Committee, for instance, the Bids Committee in Drogheda is doing fantastic work and they learn greatly from the Bids Committee in Dundalk, obviously. Uh, the nighttime advisors, I would assume, will be appointed right around the whole country after they learn from this pilot process. 
you know, it's like it's the first step on, on the stairs, you know. So, like, I mean, OK, so there are nine towns on it and the rest of the country obviously will benefit from it. But there's nothing stopping anybody uh, from doing this work. And if you look at, Ken, I know Drogheda is very near Dublin, but if you look at places that are far away, if you look at places like Tralee, you know, if you look at places like Westport or places in Donegal, uh, even places, I don't mean places like Wexford, they have a vibrant uh, culture there anyway, because the people have always relied on themselves, you know, to have their own entertainment. Whereas people nearer the cities, they tend to go in, you know, to get their plays, to get their culture, to get their music, to get their whatever. So, like, I mean, each each town will have a different formula. But Drogheda, Drogheda is going to benefit from this, and Drogheda will lead the way nationally. One of the one of the, it's the major town, and and why shouldn't it? So, okay, just just, just one final question, uh, sure, Fergus, yeah. and it is: When do you expect the legislation to be passed into law, and how soon will Drogheda and the other eight towns have these nighttime economy advisors in place? I think immediately, as I understand it, the the ads are <coughs> the ads are being placed very shortly uh, so there's no it doesn't require legislation as far as I'm aware uh, it, just go ahead the money is there let's go and do it guys let's get the right person let's consult let's get ready for it there you go that's uh, Fergus O'Dowd Fine Gael TD for Loud and Eastmead speaking to me earlier this morning just before we go regarding the assault in Drogheda Mary thinks the person who took the video needs to be traced and a hefty fine imposed she cannot believe that rather than intervening and stopping the fight they were too busy filming it Tom regarding the assault in Drogheda saw the video in question and would agree that it is shocking to watch it's horrible to think we live in a world where people think it's acceptable to post footage like this on social media or in group chats. That just about wraps it up for this morning. Maggie Maguire produced. Chris Murray was on sound. Sinead Brazel is next. I'm Ken Murray. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning. So until then, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.